Sanskrit is an ancient Indo-European language. It holds great significance in the history of India and the development of various cultures and religious traditions. It's one of the oldest recorded languages known to humankind. Its origins date back to around 1500 BC or even earlier. In ancient India, Sanskrit served as the language of the sacred texts of Hinduism. It's also the language of classical literature, philosophical treaties, scientific works, and courtly discourse. As such, it's crucial in transmitting knowledge and culture across generations. In fact, many words and roots in contemporary Indian language can be traced back to Sanskrit. And one example is the word guru. And its meaning hasn't changed. Back then and today, a guru refers to a person who's considered to be an expert, a teacher, a mentor in a particular field, someone who possesses deep knowledge and wisdom in a specific area and is recognized for their expertise, insights, and ability to guide and inspire others. And looking at my back library, dozens of my guests would hold up for that title. Susan Cain, Guy Kawasaki, Bob Ezrin, Serenstein Greenberg, Claire Shipman, and so many more. I'm always interested in what they have to say in their sphere of influence, but in the spirit of my show, it's also a story of who they are, the circumstances they overcame, the dreams they chased, and why they believe that maybe their time on this planet is to help change their world and ours for the better. My guest today is Dov Barron. Dov Barron is the dragonist. Inc. Magazine names him the top 100 leadership speakers. He's the number one Fortune 500 podcast host, Entrepreneur Magazine's contributor, and he's a best-selling author. He's considered one of the top 30 global leadership gurus. And you'll soon learn why he has a fascination with dragons. But I want to begin the show by reading a segment from one of Dove Barron's articles. Standing at the foot of the stairs, I was instantly flooded with an enormous fear. Looking down the hall towards the light partially blocked, by my father's silhouette. Desperately, I called out, Dad, where are you going? He stopped briefly, turned around, and walked back to me. Crouching down, he put one hand on my shoulder and said, I'm going now, son. Wearing a fake smile, he said, You're the man of the house now. The man of the house? I was seven years old. What the heck was I supposed to do with that? Talk about being set up for failure. is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Dov, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks, mate. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited to be with you and to serve the audience. I did a lot of research and uh, and I really enjoyed it. Some great stuff that you're doing. I'm wondering if you could uh, just share what it was like to stand at the foot of the stairs. My dad was, to say the least, uh, not very available and... Uh, he was pretty violent to my mother. And on this particular day, I just intuitively knew something was wrong and said, Dad, Dad, stop. Where are you going? I'm going now, son. You're the man of the house. I mean, talk about imposter syndrome. I'm seven years old. I'm supposed to be a man of the house. What a thing to do to a kid. But that was the turning point. It was the moment where my childhood was quite literally over. It must have been just huge weight on your shoulders, even sort of comprehending that whatever he was as a human being, he was probably a provider. He was someone that was part of your family to just suddenly say, I'm leaving and good luck. Yeah, it was an enormous weight because it wasn't just me. I mean, I had siblings. I was the eldest child. I had a mother who was chronically depressed. And for her, it was... You know, it was an overwhelming situation because now she 
She was left as the sole provider. She is the one who had to step up. And I'm supposed to take care of her. So I've got to take care of my siblings. I've got to take care of my mom. I've got to take care of her depression. I've got to take care of all those things. And I'm seven. Uh, I didn't know what to do with that. I walked into the house and my mom's crying and my <coughs> siblings are kind of don't even know what's going on. And I just feel this weight that I felt for most of my life up until my 30s. Your circumstances, you said your mom was now providing, but also what I read about your upbringing, there wasn't a lot of money to go around. If anything, you were in, in poverty. Yeah, our environment was, so we grew up around crime, violence, uh, addiction, abuse, molestation. I mean, <laughs> you, you can name off the, the list and, and you know, we'll, we'll check all the boxes. And um, so back in those days, there was something called electric meters. We used to call it the lecky in England. And uh, you put money in a machine to, to get electricity. And very often there was no money for the electricity. So the lights would go out. There was no coal for the fire. So we took newspapers and rolled them diagonally and tied them in knots so they would burn slow so we could have some form of heat. And so there was no food, there was no money, there was no heat. All these things were pretty sort of normal to my childhood. Normal's a bad word, but that's what they were. And you also talked about during that time, almost, I think to me, it's almost like an escape from this reality, your love of production, what you did to earn praise. And I'm interested in that. Yeah, that's an interesting point because um, I talk a lot about this in my work. It's called Love by Production. And so as a kid, as that eldest kid of my mom, you know, she needed all the help she could get. So my mom was working sometimes two and three jobs to try and provide for us. So when she would come home, I'd be this little kid standing on a chair doing the dishes. And my mom would be like, oh, you're such a good boy. You're such a good son. And she would brag to her friends about what a good boy I was. Well, of course, all kids need validation. All kids need recognition. All kids need love and significance. So I went, oh, this works. So after a while, I noticed that she didn't notice that I'd done the dishes. I was like, oh, why is she not noticing? And it's not a logical process. It's just an intuitive process. So I start mopping the floors. Now she notices I've mopped the floors and it increases over time so that eventually I'm cleaning the entire house. I've got my kids and my siblings ready for, for bed when she comes home from work. I get them up in the morning. I feed them breakfast. I do all these things because love by production is never satisfied. As soon as that high wears off where you get the accolades, you've got to go find another thing to do. And I lived my life that way for many, many, many years. In fact, when I dated, I still would do the same thing. I would like, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Because it was the only way I thought I would get love. Duff, from what I understand, from that time your dad put his hand on his shoulders until like 21 you went through an incredible journey of self-awareness and some pain and some trauma to kind of break the cycle. But you also broke it with something that broke your heart. At almost eight years old, I was away with my mom and my mom's boyfriend and, and their siblings, and we were camping. And I sat up in the middle of the night and started speaking in some weird language. And my mom thought, oh, my God, this kid's possessed. And he's probably going to, you know, we have to... Turn the head and puke the green. So she took me to the rabbis and I began to be taken care of by them spiritually, understanding me. And so that was an introduction to a spiritual world for me. By the time I reached 10, I taught myself prana yoga from 
my stepfather gave me a book. And I'd made this commitment that I was going to get out of there. Now, that commitment actually happened at seven, no, 13, 13, 14. I was watching a documentary on TV. Now, while the other kids were outside playing and doing all the things, my mom came in and says, you know, why are you in the here watching telly? Should be outside. <laughs> We've got to tell that to all the kids now. Um, but I wasn't. I was watching this documentary. And she said, what's it about? And I said, I don't know. And she goes, how can you not know? I said, I don't know. I said, there's no words. And it was a documentary that was filmed over four seasons, but in a span of 10 years. So it looked like four seasons, but it was 10 years. And it's about this girl who's on one uh, coast, or she's on the east coast of a country, and her journey across the country and how she meets a man and, and meets a child. But there's no words in it. It's all beautiful cinematography. And I just said to her, I'm going there. And she said, where is it? And I said, I think it's America. And she said, oh, okay. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Kids whacked. Let's... But I'd made that decision at 14 years old, I was getting out of there. So by the time I was 19, I'd had my own businesses, I'd run my own businesses, I was doing those things, I'd studied all these different religious philosophies, and I'd made that commitment. And at 21, I got out. At 21, I turned my back on everyone. And that was extremely difficult, because I'll be honest with you, I already had an 18-month-old daughter at that point. I was married at 16, my daughter was born when I was 19, and at 21, she was a year and a half old. And that was the hardest part. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. It's when there's something in your heart that has to come out, that you won't be satisfied until it comes out, that's your greatness. Because there is greatness within you. It is something within you, the spark of greatness. And it calls for you to share that with the world. My guest today is Dov Barron. He's a leadership guru, a sought-after speaker. And curiosity is what drives his soul. There's so much I want to cover, but two things I want to get to. You wake up in the middle of the night speaking a strange language. That just came off your lips. And, you know, as an interviewer, I, you got to understand, you created a niche. I need to know what, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, um, so we're all camping in, in northern Wales. The adults are playing cards, and I sit up and start going, hoo, 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 you know, I mean, who knows what it was, and freaked the hell out of my mother. And the next morning, she said to me that you, you know, you woke up and you were saying this, and do you know what it was? And I said, no. All I know is it was hoppy. And she said, what's hoppy? I said, I don't know. Many years later, I think I was actually speaking Hopi, Hopi Indian. Uh, native in Native American, and so it was um, this sense of being connected to otherworldly things, and and part of why I was shipped off to the rabbis was because I had this sense of seeing through the veil, this sense of seeing beyond what I could see. So, as an example, as a kid, I was a very good artist. In fact, most people, including myself, thought I was going to be a famous artist. It was my mum's bragging rights with her friends. So, oh, sit down, our dove will draw you. And I would draw them. But as I told you where I grew up, there was a lot of very dark individuals. And my mum and my stepfather, particularly my stepfather, were friends with many of these very dark individuals. So I would draw them. And about halfway through, they'd get bored. And they'd like, well, let me have a look. And they'd come up and they'd oh, it's great. Wow, you're really good. And I'd go, I'm not finished. Sit down. So now they'd sit down willingly. And I would complete the drawing and they would hate it. Because initially I'd draw them. And then I would, in my reality, not the truth, I would draw their soul. So often it would be a very dark image and very sort of evil 
it was that sense of being able to feel or intuit something beyond the physical realm, this sense of being able to look into the psyche of other individuals, not in a psychic one, because it's not, it's not that at all. It's just this sense of really reading the, the resonance of that individual that uh, that's what, like I said, that's what freaked my mom out. But it's also what I think led to that incident of me sitting up and speaking a foreign language. It sounds like the rabbis was a free therapy for your mom to take your, her son to and to try to figure things out. It, it was. You know, back in those days, um, the rule was, uh, long before Madonna made uh, Kabbalah uh, famous, um, the rule inside of the, the shul, inside of the synagogues, was that you couldn't learn Kabbalah until you were 42 years old. You had to be a mature man. But I was being given this insights into Kabbalah and into the mystical realms as a little boy. It made sense to me. And so when they talk about these other realms, the seven realms, I was like, okay. You know, it was no distance for me to in comprehension of understanding it. So you turn your back on everyone, and I could sense even today the pain in your face when you're talking about, and one of that was a one and a half year old daughter. So mm -hmm. that must have been a tough decision. And was that the last you saw of her? Or? No, I actually have a wonderful relationship with my daughter, but it wasn't always that way. So it's interesting that probably about five months ago, I called my daughter. My daughter lives in Australia with my son-in-law and my three eldest grandkids. And I called my daughter and I said, you know, I need to apologize to you. She goes, dad, you've apologized lots for, you know, my childhood. And I said, yeah, I know. And we've done therapy together and we've done lots of great work together. I said, but I want to apologize for something specific. And she goes, oh, okay, what's that? I said, I know you see my videos on Instagram with my granddaughter with Zara. And Zara is now two and a half. And she goes, yeah. And she goes, I love watching those videos. They're so like, you're so enjoying, she's enjoying, it's so playful. And I said, yeah, I just wish, I, I'm sorry, because I wish I could have been there for you and had that. Because I do remember you being 18 months old. And I remember that I was supposed to pick you up on Friday night and take you back Sunday morning. But I would pick you up on Thursday night and take you to school on Monday because I wanted to spend time with you. And I had that same playfulness. And she goes, I remember some of that. So even though there was these huge gaps of time between us, she did come out and live with me in Australia for many years. Then she came out where I lived for many years. She came out and lived with me in Canada for a while. Um, after my fall. So we, you know, we had these bond times, but we also had great deal of difficulty. We had, she was torn between the loyalty to her mother and the loyalty to her father. And it was very difficult for her. And she came to my wedding. I invited her to my wedding when I married the second, the uh, second time when I married my wife, who I'm now married to for 25 years. She came to my wedding with my young, my eldest grandson was to be my ring bearer and they didn't stay because of a conflict. So it's not always been easy, but it's always had the commitment to have healthy, loving relationship, no matter what. That's the bottom line. If it's not healthy, I'm not willing to have it. You know, you talked about it until my fall, and we're going to get to that in a moment, because that's another turning point. But between you leaving and the fall, give me sort of the highlight reel, because I, I want to make sure we've got lots of time to talk about other things. But you have such a fascinating journey. As I said, I started off by um, studying these uh, religious philosophies, started with Kabbalah, and then 
uh, Pranayoga, I also was very entrepreneurial. So I started my own business at 16 years old, had a business in the UK, ran other people's businesses um, before I left as well. Then I began to travel the world to study. So I started to travel. I went to uh, East Coast Canada first, and then I was in Asia and Indonesia, and then I was in Australia. All these places I was studying uh, Vedanta, which is Hindu philosophy, Buddhism, the Tao, Gnostic and Coptic Christianity. I lived with with monks and I lived with uh, an Orthodox Catholic bishop and I lived with more rabbis and studied with each of them while running my businesses. And while running those businesses, with all my spiritual studies, I got really tired of listening to people who could tell me which way my chakra was spinning, but couldn't get their shit together to hold a relationship together or make any money. And they were struggling. So I started studying Jungian psychology. I wanted to understand why people do what they do. This was the driving question of my life from being 10 years old. Why do people do what they do, even when what they do doesn't make sense? I got tired of people sitting around and complaining <laughs> and wanting me to come up with a solution. So I started studying what was then called the psychology of excellence. Today, that's called leadership. And from that, I met quite a few sort of people who felt soulless to me. And it's not true about successful people. It's just who I met. From there, I sort of stumbled into quantum physics in 1983 and the very early days of neuroscience. I was looking at what crosses the blood-brain barrier, how does stress impact the body. And from that, I developed my theory around personal emotional resonance fields and the emotional source code, which I'm the architect of. But it wasn't refined yet. It was still in the very raw sense. By the time 1990 came along, I'd, be, I'd had businesses in these three continents. I'd also spoken in many places. Uh, I'd spoken in every major city of Australia and Asia. And then I um, moved to North America. And, you know, this was my life. This was my career. I was more successful than I'd ever been. And then in June 1990, I fell approximately 120 feet and landed on my face got smashed to pieces. And the way you describe it is you were this adrenaline junkie. You needed to find a way to chase life and death. This was the only thing that seemed to make your eyes shine and your heartbeat. You know, it's, it's interesting because when we think about addictions, we think about addictions as in heroin or cocaine or whatever it is. But actually, uh, from a neuroscience point of view, every human being is an addict. We're addicted to something. My definite drug of choice was adrenaline. It was the way to feel dynamically alive, clinging to a roof rack at 60 miles an hour while my friend drives down a country road. You know, it's stupid. <laughs> don't get don't me I'm not recommending it. But it was a way that I would do that. And so I, I was free climbing. It was one of the things I did. And on that day, it was destination death. I mean, I did die. I died five times on that occasion. You fell 120 feet, smashed your face in. I mean, how did Humpty Dumpty put you back together again? Or how did the, king, how did the king's horses and king's men put Humpty Dumpty back? I mean, that's, how did you survive that? Well, physically, it's um, much easier than it is any other way. So I've had, I think, 10 reconstructive surgeries all up. But you can't put Humpty Dumpty together again in a mental, emotional way. And if you do, it's, it's a fake job. It's, it's super glue and band-aids. And what I had to come to realize was that I didn't want to be put together again. I did. That's my ego wanted me to be put together again, but I needed to not be put together again. I needed to reevaluate my life. The day I fell, I was 185 pounds of lean, mean muscle. Three weeks later, I was 135 pounds. I lost 50 pounds in three weeks. So I was a bone rack. 
And in November, with my jaw wired closed, I went bungee jumping at 140 feet off the Nanaimo Bridge for that same adrenaline fix. This was the awakening around adrenaline because my buddy Mark was supposed to come with me and he didn't come. And I saw him like a week later and he said, oh, how was the bungee jumping? And I was like, it was great. It was so great. You know, and I'm really excited. And he goes, tell me about it. And I took a pause and I suddenly realized, I don't know. How can you not know? You did it, right? I said, yeah. I said, I stood on the, on the bridge, on the edge of that jump with the cord wrapped around my ankles. And the guy said to me, I'm holding onto the rail. And he said to me, I'm going to say three, two, one bungee. And when I say bungee, you jump. And he said three and my hands went, they gripped on so tightly that I knew if he got to one, I wouldn't let go. He said two, I let go and I jumped. I can still remember the top of the pine trees and the blue sky, but I can't remember anything else until I bounced at the bottom, which was a woohoo. And in that moment, I realized that was what I was chasing. I was chasing woohoo, which is I survived, I'm alive, which is how I felt in my childhood. I constantly felt like everything could go wrong. I felt like I could be attacked, molested, violence, crime. I could starve to death. It was, I lived in that adrenaline state as a child. So this was very natural. And realizing I was chasing that moment of being vibrantly alive made me realize... What if I lived that way? And that was the last time my friend said to me, are you going to go again? I went, nope, I'm done with adrenaline. And he's like, what? And that was it. That's the last big adrenaline thing I ever did. We return, we learn more about purpose and why it matters. And I asked Dove if what drives him still is this sense of chase for praise. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. In this world of uncertainty, there's never been a greater need for individuals and organizations to lead with integrity and purpose. A big shout out to RBC for investing their intellectual and financial capital to help forge that path. Whether it's investing in Olympians, the arts, upskilling today's youth for tomorrow's jobs, or leading the way with climate change. Leadership matters to RBC. Where is the commonality between you and the people in your culture? Or do you just dismiss it and go, well, you know, they're different than me. What if they're not? It's not about you. It's about you finding a connection to others. It's a balance of of the mind, of course, but also of the heart and finding that common soulful purpose that brings us together. You have to love your people. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Dov Barron. He's an intellectual firehose. He's going to offer you insights and ideas that I think really are going to be of tremendous value to you. You talk about that time of trying to put it all together, going into the back and the recesses and going into the dragon's den, dragon's lair. And I want to talk about it because dragon has become a big part of your identity. So take me back to the first time that you met up with the dragon. I think the first time I met up with a dragon without realizing it was in my childhood, uh, facing down the demons of the pedophile ring that my stepfather ran, that my sister and I were brought into. Um, But we didn't know what they were. We didn't know what it was. Uh, We didn't know the demons we were dealing with. Um, And I don't mean that in a religious sense, so please understand that. 
But the real dragon that we have to face, I mean, think about the metaphor. It's a beautiful metaphor. Because if you watch Lord of the Rings, there's a point where you you remember in Lord of the Rings that they meet a dragon. And the dragon sits on top of all the gold. Metaphorically, a dragon protects that which is most valuable. And it will burn you up if you try to take what's most valuable. And when I fell... People would ask me, how are you doing? And I was always like, I'm great. I'm coming back. It was bullshit. It was my ego. But when I got into that dark place and I realized how darkly depressed I was, I had to enter into that dark cave where the dragon lived. I had to go try and find the thing that is most valuable. As Joseph Campbell says, the treasure you seek can only be found in the dark cave you fear to enter. I entered that cave on a particular evening. And as I walked into that terrified of what I would confront, I realized that the value, the thing I wanted most was in there, but the dragon I would have to face was my own ego because my ego did not want me to take that which was most valuable, did not want me to take responsibility for my own soul. This dragon as a nomenclature, as a, a metaphor, has become part of your vernacular and part of your brand. And one of the questions I have, because you are one of the top 30 gurus, you get so highly regarded is... You know, Simon Sinek is known for the circle, uh, Covey for the seven principles, Oprah for the secret. Do you be attached to a dragon? Did you ever question that I wouldn't be taken seriously? I, I belong more in a Marvel comic movie or, or, you know, or the Game of Thrones than I do in a boardroom or in front of a microphone speaking to an audience of a thousand people. I mean, I had those discussions with friends of mine who are brand guys and like, you know, this is a bit, uh, bit tricky here, mate, for you to get into. And I was like, yeah, I understand. But it is a metaphor. And it's, it's the understanding, this willingness to step into something that takes courage. And, I, and I, from my point of view, you have to face the dragon because the dragon burns away the lies. And the question becomes, what is the lies you are attached to? What are the lies that you are clinging to that need burning away? What is it that you've got to let go of? Because we're all clinging. This is part of the addiction. We're all clinging to something. And until we can let it be burned up, it will not transmute into something else. Because fire doesn't just burn away, it transforms. And so it's this willingness to say, who I was, I need to let that burn up so that I can become who I will become. Talk to me more about the work you're doing. I was really moved by you, the gratitude you seem to have saying, every person I've worked with, in every occasion, I walk away saying thank you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure someone in your position would always feel that way versus I have to <laughs> versus thank you. So I have a philosophy. Uh, it's called the mirror philosophy. Every single person I meet is a reflection of me. So I want to say thank you for reminding me of a part of myself that I may have forgotten. You may be a very wise individual and I may have forgotten that part of my own wisdom. And you may be incredibly ignorant and, and, and stuck and rigid and egoic. And I may have forgotten, yes, that was me. Or that is me in any given moment. And so I want to be thankful. I want to be grateful for the awakening to that part of ourselves that we want to deny. You see, in that cave in which I entered, I had to look into the places I didn't want to look. And now everybody brings that to me. 
So there is no client who is not a reflection of me. These people that I work with who are so eloquent and elegant and, you know, and incredibly successful and, and do all these things, I know that I've got something for them they don't have. But what they have for me is a mirror to show me what is most important in life and to remind them to look into that mirror for themselves. You might be listening, watching this right now and thinking, you know, well, you know, this guy's been through quite a journey. But let me ask you, what was your fall? Was your fall a bankruptcy, a diagnosis, a divorce, loss of a loved one? We all go through a fall. The only question is, do you go through the fall and do what I did and say, oh, I'm great, I'm coming back. There is no back. Evolution only moves forward. Or do you say, this is the moment that stops me and lets me sit in the ashes, to use Bly's words, lets me sit in the ashes of my own grief so that I can transform. That's why I'm so grateful to everybody. Do you think part of that, and I'm not trying to play armchair psychologist, but this love of production and the sense of wanting to be praised, instead of doing dishes for your mom, you're now helping people that have the rudder on major corporations or major governments steer it. Do you think part of what drives you is that sense of walking out going, that I'm going to get that love of production? So that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. And it's an important question. Every human being has a need for significance. doesn't matter who you are. We all need to feel significant. We all need to feel somehow important. That's not a bad need. If I'm chasing it as a drug, that's a bad thing. I'm not chasing it as a drug anymore. When I was a kid, I was, for sure. I was doing love by production. Now, of course, I enjoy that I can serve those people. I enjoy that I can make that difference. But at the same time, it's worth noting that I turn down a lot of people. People say, I want to I work with you. I have to interview you. I'd like to take your check, but I can't take your check if I can't serve you. And that's what matters more. So the service is more important than the reward. And so that transfers in exactly the same way. It's like, yes, I want the reward, just like that little boy wanted love by production, but now I can live without it. So I want to now go to a rapid fire. I've only done this one other time, but you've got so many things I want to talk about. We've got such a few times. So I'm going to give you these rapid fire questions. Of all the books you've written, what do you feel is your best for someone just getting to know you? And what will the reader get from it? Uh, the simplest book would be One Red Thread, Finding the Purpose Already Woven Into Your Life. It's an ebook. It's easy to read, but it will actually ask you to examine what is your purpose in life? Why are you really here? There's another book called Don't Read This, Your Ego Won't Like It. Um, it's another one of mine. It's a fat book, but it's really written in very simple language. And that's an easy way to understand how your own mind works and how it gets in the way and what you can do to get out of the way. So if you had a magic wand and you could change anything about how humanity and society are unfolding in democratic nations, what would you change? It would be in mirror philosophy, in having people look at each other through the lenses of, I am you, you are me. What is it in you that irritates me that is in me? If we can see that in others, if we can have, see, there's a, the words empathy and compassion are thrown around, but we don't really grasp what it means as a society. We like the word, it's like we throw the word narcissist around. We're throwing these words around without really understanding what it is. You can't say I'm empathetic and then be 
horrendously judgmental against somebody who believes differently than you. The worst advice you ever got was spend time with people who are like-minded. What we need to do is spend time with people who are not like-minded and come at that from a place of compassion, empathy, and understanding with deep curiosity. Curiosity is my religion. It's like that's what I'm tied to. Religion comes from, from the Latin religio, that which I'm bound to. I'm bound to curiosity because in that I can find me in you. I can find you in me. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. There is a dream within you that you did not get by accident. They are your heart and your soul crying out for expression. And sometimes it's not for you to be super successful at them. It's for you to do them with joy. It's for you to do them, to just express something in the world. My guest today is Dolph Barron. He's a leadership guru. He is just an intellectual firepower. I've enjoyed this immensely. And my three takeaways are coming up. I'm going to continue on this political bent because you've lived in Canada, both coasts. You're Prime Minister of Canada. What are the things you would do in your first term to help define Canada's legacy? I think it would be three parts, and that is that change the schooling and teaching system, um, because right now it is the Prussian schooling system that was adopted um, in the first part of the 20th century. It is outdated, and it is um, not very useful anymore. Um, in that system, we would have a curiosity-based way of learning for people that would facilitate polymathy, meaning people could study different things that they're really interested in. So if you're failing geography, well, that's okay, Charlie. Uh, what are you interested in? I'm interested in basketball. Okay, I want you to do some research. I want you to find out where basketball is played around the world. Now he's interested in geography because it's tied to what he's fascinated by. That's just an example. The other part of that is I would like it blows my mind that we, you know, when when we were in the pandemic, we stood outside and we banged our pots and pans for the essential workers. And one of those essential workers that we banged our pots and pans for were teachers. We recognized, my God, these people take care of these hoodlums who are living in my house and I have to put up with them now. Oh my God. And we valued teachers. And as soon as they've gone back, the, uh, you know, we think they're overpaid and underworked. Like these, these are amazing human beings and, the, and some of them do it as a vocation, not as a job. Like we need to treat teachers much better. So that would be the first part. Teaching and education would be the first part of that, um, that Canadian legacy. The next part would be homelessness and mental health. We can't deal with homelessness without dealing with mental health. Human beings need purpose. They need meaning. And a lot of the people who are homeless have lost that. They've lost their dignity. Many of them have mental health issues. And there's a problem with the system that we close down mental health hospitals. <laughs> That's tragic. But many of those people are lost without meaning. They're traumatized. They're living in the trauma that never got dealt with. And we need to deal with trauma because trauma is at the root of homelessness, not having community. We are community-driven human beings. We are tribal. So we need to solve homelessness by taking care of mental health and dealing with trauma, which leads into the third thing I would do as the legacy, which is community, building communities. And communities are local 
and national, but communities. Let's have a, like, instead of putting people in jail, let's create community service that serves the community, that allows people to actually be in a service and serving local economic support. So, you know, listen, I'm a small grocery store and I don't have any extra money and it's really difficult. Um, well, okay, listen, this Charlie over here is, you know, he did this or that and he needs to do his community service. He's going to work for you for five hours a week for the next two months. So now Charlie's learning about that small business. He's learning about economics. He's learning about a community. He's getting to know customers, getting to know people. Charlie becomes a, a positive member of the society that way. We've got to do this. We've got to make a difference. We've got to create communities. We've got to solve homelessness through mental health issues and dealing with the trauma that is so, I mean, it's epidemic. And we have to start that very early on because the idea that we've believed politically is the world is changed by these old white men with white hair. That's not true. Think about it for a moment. It's women. Women whisper into the ears of their children. Their children grow up and we are wanting to push them down and conform them. But without youth, there is no change. And the world is changed by women and children and artists, those who are brave enough, courageous enough to speak out against the, tr against the, uh, the authority. We need to be teaching and providing at that level so that we strengthen people we give them not just resilience, but we make them so that they are anti-fragile, so that they're getting stronger with a each time something happens, they get stronger because they want to serve at a greater level. Dov, there's going to be so many people wanting to find out more about you. Point us in the best direction so that people can spend more time getting to know you versus trying to find out about you. Three easy, simple places. You can find my podcast, which is called the Leadership and Loyalty Podcast. Find that anywhere on that you listen to podcasts. Uh, the main social media platform I'm on, I'm on them all, but best to look for me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most, uh, I, I put free content on there five days a week, two videos and three articles. And of course, my own website, which is dovebaron.com dot com d-o-v-b-a-r-o-n dot com and guess what i'm insane here's my email address <laughs> dov at dovbaron.com so d-o-v at d-o-v-b-a-r-o-n dot com and i want you to write to me i want you to tell me what you got out of this show and and here's the other thing i want you to write to tony because this is important i have a podcast i know what it takes i know the amount of work that it takes and it seems like it's a one-way system a lot of the time that we're just putting out and we don't know he needs you to write to him to tell him what you got out of this episode or any episode. And more importantly, what are you going to do with it? Because information is worth the hole in the donut. Transformation comes from application. What are you going to do with this? How are you going to make your life or the lives of those you serve better? Write to Tony. Let him know. Write to me if there's something I can help you with. Is there some way I can be of guidance to you or service to you? Feel free to write to me. Don't go, oh, well, he only deals with the big, the really big cheesies. No, I deal with everybody. Please feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to be of service. I always end with my three takeaways, and I have so many going through my brain right now. I feel like it's almost a pinball machine, but let me... Let me start with, I think you are in a rage against the machine. And I mean that in the most positive sense. I think your brain is firing on all cylinders. You see the truth. 
You know how we can find places to get to the middle ground, to collaborate, and you're just making your life's cause to do it. I hope there's times where you can just stop and breathe because you've got so much energy to offer the world. Second one is this concept of curiosity and how it's driven you from that first time. I don't know, mom, what I'm watching. I don't know what I said. I don't know, but I have to find out. Instead of dismissing it, or it must have been a nightmare, or I've got to turn off and go play with my friends, you've got this incredible desire to go a mile wide and a mile deep in a million different ways. And I think that's just a fantastic lesson for all of us in the sense of curiosity and how important. And then the final thing, and I just did a show on homelessness with somebody who was addicted, homeless, and now an advocate for the homeless. And I think you're so right, and you're so consistent with what he says. And I'm going to repeat it because it's an important lesson of all. Much of what we deal with deals begins with trauma. And if we don't give them a path back with purpose and dignity and a hand up versus a handout, all we're doing is applying a Band-Aid on a wound that we hope we won't have to deal with, but we know intuitively we will. So for all of that and more, I just had an adrenaline junkie hour with you. It's just been a fantastic guest. Thank you for joining me. That's so kind, Tony. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.